Revelation chapter 12. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word this morning. John writes, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea." This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, we are officially in the second half of Revelation. We're in the second half of the book, and chapter 12 certainly marks a a change in tone or focus uh, in the book. We're not quite in the home stretch, but it kind of, we're sort of getting closer to that, making progress. Um, If you were with us for some, or at least, you know, all or maybe some of these studies in Revelation, you might have, you've probably heard me say a few things more than once. I've repeated myself because there's a lot of repetition in the book of Revelation. You know, uh, we don't want to retread the same, all the same ground over and over again, but, you know, very often we think of Revelation in an incorrect way. Sometimes we think of it and we can get in trouble in our, in our understanding of it by thinking that it's a, in a, in chronological order that everything follows after the next thing and that everything is in sequence from from start to finish, one thing after the other. When you read the book that way, you you find yourself coming up on passages that talk about the end early in the book and the return of Christ and his reign early in the book multiple times 
And so you come, you can come away with a strange view of, of the end times when you don't realize that there's a lot of, there, it, the book of Revelation is cyclical in nature. It tells the whole story in snapshots multiple times throughout the book. And what happens in this chapter that we're looking at now is, we're looking at, you could say Revelation 12 tells the entire story of redemptive history and of history in this world from Christ's birth to his second coming, but it does it in a different way than we've been looking at in the rest of the book so far. Now we're kind of getting not just a peek at the whole scope of what happens, we're getting a peek behind the scenes at why these things happen, what lays behind what we see throughout history, both in the scriptures and even in our own day. So we're covering the same ground that's been covered before in the book, but from a different perspective. This chapter does exactly that. It takes us behind the scenes to show us why things happen the way they're happening. So what we're having in our chapter is, is kind of a glimpse, a symbolic glimpse, into the hidden forces at work in the invisible world, the invisible war, that is, that underlies the battles that you and I go through as God's people in this life. There's a battle that we go through as God's people, and there's an invisible war behind it. That's what this text talks about. In his commentary on the book of Revelation, Herman Hoeksema writes that here in this chapter, in chapter 12, quote, we find a revelation of the real spiritual agency which is back of the opposition and enmity against the church. In other words, we see, we see what lays behind the persecution of the church that has happened all throughout history. We see the reason for it. We see the cause, the agency, the satanic agency behind it. That's what's going on here in our text. And that's that's what Paul says himself in Ephesians 6, isn't it? Ephesians 6, verse 12. Remember, Ephesians 6, he tells us to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, to put on the full armor of God. And in verse 12, he says, why? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the real fight. That's, that's your real enemy. We, sit, we sometimes see the human face of our enemies, of the enemies of the gospel, but that's not the real story, is it? And Revelation 12, among other places, like Ephesians 6, reminds us of that fact, that there's more than meets the eye going on in the battles that we face as believers in Christ. So our, our true fight, our ultimate fight, is not with flesh and blood, even if they are the face of the enemy that we often see. The, the flesh and blood is often the instruments of the enemy that we face, but they are not the ultimate enemy that we face. And the war that Satan wages against the church is the war against the rest of the offspring of the woman spoken of in verse 17 of our text. So the struggle that the church, that you as believers, fight against isn't against people ultimately, but it's against what? The cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the bad news, right? That's the bad news. The bad news is the battle you're in is much worse than you might have thought. You know, I don't know about you, but when I think of the human faces, so to speak, of of the fight that we're in, I already feel overwhelmed. I already feel like we're outnumbered. In a lot of ways, we are. You know, a lot of ways we see things like Elisha's servant in 2 Kings 6. Master, look, they've got us surrounded. We don't see the other 
the, the other forces that are arrayed for our defense. And so our, our enemy is much more powerful and, and numerous than we might have imagined. But the good news is that as powerful as the, our enemy is, and the devil is very powerful, the devil is much more powerful than we are. Christ our Lord and Redeemer has defeated Satan at the cross and has freed us from his power and might. The one who is on our side is much, much greater, to say the least, than all that Satan can do. Now, Satan is a defeated foe. It doesn't always look like he's defeated, though, does it? When you look around at what's going on in our world, he's been defeated, verse 8 tells us that. Verse 9 tells us he's been cast down from heaven, and he's come down uh, in great wrath, verse 12 says. Why? Because his time is short. He knows he has been defeated. He has not been able to prevent the birth of the Christ. He has been thrown down from heaven. He has been defeated. And his time is, his time is short. He also knows that we who are in Christ will overcome him in Christ. We are more than conquerors, Paul says, through him who loved us. So he, he is defeated, but he is not inactive. In fact, he has come down with great wrath against God's people. Now, the first thing you want to look at in our text in verses 1 through 6 is John is given a vision of two great signs, two great signs or symbols, and that's the woman and the dragon. Look at verses 1 through 3. He says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. This is quite the vision of a woman. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And then he says, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. So John John speaks of two signs, two symbols. And the first sign or symbol is a woman. And what's happening? She's in labor and giving birth. Now, who is this woman? What is this woman Represent, you know, on first blush, you might say, well, it's Mary. Of course, it's Mary because she gave birth to Jesus, the child, if you read the text or heard me reading it. Who is, who is her child? The one who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron? That's Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Son of God, right? So, but the woman, this vision of this woman in, in, in our text is not Mary in particular in, 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 in that sense. What she is, what she represents is Old Covenant Israel. The church in the Old Testament. What was the purpose of the Old Testament history, even including the people of Israel? Remember the, how many diadems or how many uh, stars were on her crown? Twelve. Remember the, the vision of Joseph when he had this vision that, that made his brothers so jealous and they tried to kill him and sold him off into slavery that, that he saw their sheaves bowing down to his sheep. Then he saw the, the sun, the moon, and the stars bowing. You know, what, what, and what did they take it as? You know, that's us. You're saying mom and dad and us are going to bow down to you. Well, it's the same kind of imagery used here in our text of this pregnant woman. And so the, the purpose of Israel in your Old Testament, what was her purpose? What was her, her main reason for existing? To bring forth the Christ. When you read, you know, the, the, some of those passages you read in like Matthew 1 and places like that that have these long genealogies, and you might scratch your head and say, what am I supposed to get out of all these lists of names that I can't even pronounce half of them? Well, those names, that genealogy you read in Matthew 1, is showing you the line of the Messiah, that he came according to the promise of God all through the Old 
Testament. So this this woman with, this, with the sun and the, and the moon and the stars is a symbol or a picture of Old Testament Israel and her role in bringing forth the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The 12 stars represent the 12 tribes of Israel. But what about the second sign? This, this kind of sounds like some kind of fantasy movie. You know, you've got this pregnant woman, and the, the thing that you wouldn't expect to see next is he's a dragon. And not just any dragon, but a dragon with how many heads? Seven heads and, and ten horns and all these things. And it's a, a great red or a great fiery dragon is what John is shown in verse 3 with seven heads and ten horns. Now, I don't think we're supposed to read all kinds of things into all those details, but what is the number seven in Revelation? What does it signify? Completeness. And so he's got, according to how things look outwardly anyway, this dragon seems to have all the earthly power and authority that there is. And a horn is a symbol of power. So we're supposed to think of this dragon and be kind of frightened by it. It's a scary picture, especially if if you picture him coming against a, a woman who's giving birth to a baby. And what does this dragon intend to do? When she gives birth, he wants to kill the baby. It's an awful picture. It's a frightening picture. But what happens? In verse 5, John says, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations or shepherd all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So you have, in this one verse, you have kind of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ all compressed, and his his birth for that matter, all compressed in the span of one verse. It doesn't go into all the detail of it, but he's he's born, the, the devil was not able to prevent it, and he is caught up to the right hand of God and to his throne. Now who is the male child? The only person that could possibly be is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's from from Psalm 2. In Psalm 2 it says he'll break the nations, dash them to pieces with a rod of iron. And before that dragon could devour the child, he's caught up to God and to his throne. You could say that in some ways this vision in verses 1 through 6 and the rest of the chapter as well is really a description, an explanation of of you could say all of the history of the Old Testament. It's a summary, a brief summary of everything you see in your Old Testament from Genesis three on. And why is that? It's not an accident. There's no such thing as an accident, right? But it's not an accident. Look at Genesis three fifteen. This is all stemming from Genesis three, verse fifteen. It says there, "This is God's curse upon the serpent." After the fall of mankind into sin, he says, I will put enmity, he tells the serpent, between you and and the woman. And then he adds, and between your offspring or seed and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there God is speaking to the serpent who is the devil. He's judging him for his part in the fall of mankind into sin. And the curse upon the serpent there is fulfilled all throughout the history of the Old Testament, starting with Cain and Abel, the first children of Adam and Eve. Remember the story of Cain and Abel right after the fall, the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, Cain rises up and kills his brother Abel. And why did he do that? You know, it's easy to look at it just from a human perspective and say, well, when you read the story, in Genesis anyway, he's jealous. 
you know, they both, paraphrasing and summarizing, they both brought an offering to God. Remember, Abel was a shepherd, a keeper of flocks, and Cain was a worker of the soil. He planted crops, and they both brought an offering, and God rejected Cain's offering, but he accepted Abel's offering. Now, why do you think that is? Many many times people say, well, Cain's heart was, was wrong and Abel's heart was right, and that may be some part of it, uh, but what does the Bible say? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And what did Abel bring? He probably brought a lamb. We don't know for sure, but that's probably what he brought. It's a, it's a sacrifice of blood foreshadowing that of Christ, who is the Lamb of God. What did, what did Cain bring? The fruit of the ground. And what did God tell Cain? You know, why is your face fallen? Why are you upset? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? If you bring the right sacrifice, he knew what to do and wouldn't do it. He wouldn't, he probably had to go to Abel, maybe to get it to Lamb. We don't know. But did Cain refuse to shed blood? No, that's, that's another problem. He wouldn't shed the blood of a lamb, but he would shed the blood of his brother. He murdered his brother. Why did he do that? We might say jealousy, but what's the real reason? You know, we don't have to guess. First John 3 verses, uh, verse 12, First John 3, 12, John, the same writer of Revelation says this, We should not be like Cain. Good, good advice. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. He really gives us two reasons, doesn't he? The first one, or really the second one, is because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. His brother made him look bad, so to speak. But what's the real reason? It's the first thing he says. He was of the evil one. In other words, the Apostle John is reading Genesis 3 and 4 together. He's saying Genesis 4 is because of Genesis 3.15. And so even though Cain and Abel were both the seed or the offspring of Adam and Eve, spiritually speaking, who was Cain the seed or offspring of? Satan, the evil one. John tells you right there in black and white. He was of the evil one, which is why his deeds were evil in the first place. In many ways, you could say that much of the history of the Old Testament, not just Genesis 4, but all the rest of it, is the outworking and fulfillment of God's curse and promise found in Genesis 3.15. Why did Cain murder his own brother Abel? Not because he was jealous, but because he was of the evil one. Uh, In some sense, all the persecution of the people of God found in scriptural history is the outworking of that same verse, that same curse and promise in Genesis 3.15. That's what's behind Cain murdering Abel. That's what's behind Esau hating Jacob. That's what's behind Pharaoh seeking to destroy Israel, Saul trying to kill David, and even Herod seeking to kill the baby Jesus in the Gospels. When you see the way that the people of God were treated throughout the Scriptures, but especially in the Old Testament as well, what's the cause of it? What's the purpose of it? It's the evil one, it's Satan himself, the serpent, trying to prevent the Christ from being born. If he could stop that line, if he could cut that line off and kill it, the Christ wouldn't be boring it. What do you see happening? God supernaturally, by his providence and power, keeping that line going and preserving that line. Joseph, if Joseph had been killed, well, he wasn't the one from the line, Judah was, but you have all these things that could have, cut, could have killed the people of God outright and could have stopped the Messiah from being born, but God prevented it. 
You know, as I'm reading this text, these first six verses, this picture of the dragon waiting to kill and devour this baby, all I can, th- I kept thinking of the abortion industry in our country. Why are people so hell bent, and I use that phrase on purpose, on killing babies in the womb? What's the reason for it? What's the power and the, the persuasion behind it? It doesn't make any sense to us. It shouldn't make any sense to us. It's satanic in origin. Why, why is that? Why is that such a thing? Why is such a thing as that going on? You remember in Genesis 9, I won't get into this as part of a long part of the sermon, but in Genesis 9 it talks about capital punishment and the reason for it. And what was the reason for it? For man is made in the image of God. So you have to think in some ways every murder is an attack on the image of God and every, every murder of a baby in some small way you could say is it's, it's, a, it's a reflection, it's a shadow of this attack of, of the serpent, of this dragon on trying to kill Christ. Herod was so against, because of the work of Satan in his heart, was so against the Christ who was supposed to be the king, he saw, it, saw Christ as a threat to his own power and rule. What did he do? He had every baby under the age of two killed in Bethlehem. Why would any man do that? Well, he would do that because he is of the he was of the seed of Satan of the dragon. Well, the next thing we see in our text in verses seven to twelve is not just a picture of two signs in heaven, uh, signs up in heaven, but a war in heaven, a war in heaven. Look at verses seven to nine. It says, "Now war." arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. You know, John doesn't tell us, doesn't come out and tell us who the woman is. He leaves that to the description that we're supposed to kind of figure that out. But the, the dragon, he makes no bones about it. Just in case we didn't realize who he was talking about, what does he say? The great dragon, that ancient serpent. What's he talking about? Why does he call him the ancient serpent? What, what passage is he pointing us back to? Genesis 3, the fall in the Garden of Eden, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So we are, we are facing a defeated foe. The evil one, as great and powerful as he is, has been thrown down. John tells us who he is, uh, and he says that, that the devil or Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was defeated. When was he defeated? When was his head crushed? According to Genesis 3.15, his head was crushed, and he was defeated at the cross of Christ when Christ died and rose from the dead. It was at the cross of Calvary that Christ's heel, so to speak, was bruised, and the serpent's head was crushed in the process. You might remember that, what's the name of the place where Jesus was crucified? Golgotha. What does Golgotha mean? Place of the skull. Why was it called that? The the hillside looked like a skull. That's not by accident. It was put that way in God's providence to be a picture of what it was representing and what it was fulfilling when Christ was crucified. It's a, you know, he's crucified on the cross on top of this hill, crushing the head of the serpent in his own death. 
the war in heaven pictured for us in this vision resulted in a defeated dragon and his angels being cast down from heaven. Why is that? Christ, we looked at it a couple weeks ago with the ascension, Christ is now enthroned in heaven. Remember where did the man child, the male child, where, where was he snatched up to? To heaven, to the right hand of God, to, to his throne. He is now enthroned and Satan is cast out. And so this battle in heaven is a, is a symbol of what happened at the cross of Christ, his resurrection, and his ascension. It's, it's there that Genesis 3.15 found its ultimate fulfillment. And look at verse 10. You know, all through our text, there, there's parts that can be kind of disturbing and maybe almost scary if you think about it, but all through the text, the text is peppered with portions that speak and praise Jesus Christ and speak of his power. It says in verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So Christ, here once again we see another passage talking about the ascension of Christ and his ruling over all things at God's right hand for the sake of his church. And it says, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. Now Satan is, what does it say? He's called the accuser. Satan means accuser. He's the accuser of the brethren. And he accuses us, what? Day and night before our God. Now what does that, what does that imply? We must have a lot of things to be accused of. If left to ourselves, we have no victory over the evil one. But what does it say at least four times in verses 9 to 10? I don't know if you caught the repetition. Four times it says he's been thrown down. He's an over, he's been overcome. He's been cast down by the Lord Jesus Christ, our King and our victor. He's been cast down along with his angels. He has been defeated even if he hasn't stopped fighting. But the battle is now down here where we are. It's no longer in, in heaven. He's been cast down and defeated. So what do we do? What does Revelation 12 tell us or imply that we are to do? How are we as believers to fight the fight? How are we to conquer this powerful but defeated enemy who lives to accuse us day and night before God? Look at verse 11. John says, they, they is you, if you're a believer. They have conquered him. Notice he doesn't say will. He doesn't say one day they'll conquer him. He says, they have, past tense, they have conquered him, how? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. It's the blood of the Lamb. The word of their testimony is their faith in Christ. They would not recant even if it cost them their lives. That's how the saints have in the past conquered over the evil one. That's how the saints, all the way until Christ returns, will conquer over the evil one, by the blood of the Lamb. He accuses us, and we have much to be accused of. If you know your own self, if you know your own sins, the sins of your heart and mind, the things you've said you shouldn't have said, all the things that you've done, we don't measure up. On our own, Satan's got He has a right to accuse us. He's got plenty of ammunition, but how do you overcome that? Only one way, by the blood of the Lamb who died for our sins, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In fact, what does Paul say in Romans 8.37? 
He says, those of us who are in Christ by faith are, not will be, are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We conquer in the conqueror. We conquer in Christ. When the accuser of the brethren seeks to bring any charge against God's elect, it's Christ, Paul says, who justifies us. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, he might try. We conquer by the blood of Christ. Who can condemn us when Christ himself died for us, rose again, and is now seated and enthroned at God's right hand, and is even right now interceding for us? No one. We are more than conquerors in Christ because nothing in all creation, Paul says, can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12, he says that the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He's a defeated enemy. His head was crushed at the cross of Christ, and yet he's not not yet an inactive enemy. Doesn't take much to see his influence in the world around us. And yet, if I can quote Martin Luther's hymn, his doom is sure. Lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. His defeat is sealed. It's already done a done deal, and yet he's not inactive yet. He knows what does it say? He knows his time is short. We might think his time doesn't seem very short. Satan knows his time is short. Satan knows his doom is is sure and so what does he do? He doesn't he doesn't waste any time. You know, we waste time. Paul says redeem the time because the days are evil. Satan has one up on us in that regard. He doesn't waste his time. He doesn't waste his powder so to speak. He doesn't waste his ammunition. He vents his wrath at God's people. He went after the woman in verses 13 to 16. But what does it say? It says she was helped and given wings like the great eagle to fly away into the wilderness. So the woman is safe and sound in in this vision, so to speak. So then what does he do? Does Satan kind of, you know, brush off it, brush it off of his hands and say, well, I guess the jig is up. I can't do anything. No. Who does he go after? Here's the bad news. He goes after us. That's what he's doing. He can't touch Christ. Christ is at the right hand of God. He can't touch the woman, so to speak. What does he do? Verse 17, he he vents his fury upon the rest of her offspring, which is the church. And notice the description of the church that John gives us here. What does he call us? Those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, how many professing Christians don't fit that description? If you want to be left alone by the evil one, All you have to do is not fit that description. The devil will leave you alone because he will not have you in his sights. But if you keep, you seek by God's grace and the work of his spirit to keep his commandments and to hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ, hold to the faith in Jesus Christ, what happens? You find yourself in his sights. You might say to yourself, I, you know, I'm trying to follow the Lord. Why does all this keep happening? Whatever, whatever, things you find happening in your life. Well, it's, it's not without reason. He sees the, any, any glimpse of a likeness of Christ in you as the, off, as the rest of the offspring, and what does he do? He attacks it. That is the only explanation for the persecution of the church in this world throughout history. How often has the church been so, you know, we're a small church, but how often has the church been so insignificant in the eyes of the world that you would think, why would they bother? 
Why is the world always trying to attack the church, sometimes physically, sometimes in a deadly fashion? Why is that? Why doesn't the world just leave the church alone? Why does the government in places like North Korea and China and other places, why do they work so hard to try to stamp out the Christian faith? Why do they violently attack believers in Christ and pastors and churches? Because of this thing that we're looking at in our text. It's a satanic thing in its origin. It's Satan himself, through his instruments, making war on the rest of the offspring of the woman. He can't touch or harm Christ, so what does he do? The next best thing, he attacks the people of Christ in the church. Remember remember the Apostle Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, when he was Saul of Tarsus, and he was saved on that road, Damascus Road in Acts 9? What did Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended Christ, say to Saul? Do you remember he blinds him from, with a light from heaven. He knocks him off his high horse, literally, and he asks him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting me? That's a glimpse into what Satan's doing. At the time, Saul thought he was serving God. Who was he serving? The evil one. And what was the evil one trying to do, trying to do in persecuting the church? He was trying to persecute Christ. He was trying to hurt Christ. The good news in that is, how does Christ take it when his church is persecuted? He takes it very personally. He doesn't take it as, oh, they're hurting those people. He's saying, why are you persecuting me? That is bad news for anyone who would oppose the church of Christ and would seek to harm the apple of God's eye. He takes it that personally. Why are you persecuting me? That is certainly what Satan was trying to do and what Saul unknowingly was trying to do as well until Christ saved his soul and turned him uh, from his sin to serve him and to be an apostle of the gospel after that. That's an explanation for all the terrible persecution that the church of God has endured throughout history and still endures to this day. This is the only explanation for the spiritual war, this invisible war, that we find ourselves in as believers in Christ. It's satanic in origin. That's, again, that's the bad news. But what's the good news? If you're in Christ by faith, if you're a believer in Christ, your victory is sure. Your, your, your king has already conquered. And that, that victory will be made public for all to see one day at Christ's return. Even now, Christ, we looked at a, few, a couple weeks ago with the Ascension, on Ascension Sunday. Even now, Jesus Christ, where is he? seated at the right hand of God, reigning over all things for the sake of his church, building and defending his church. It doesn't always feel like it, but that's exactly what he's doing. And he will do that until uh, the day he calls us all home to be with himself. And so because of that, no matter how this dragon may seem in this chapter to our to our thoughts, when you read this chapter and you might feel kind of overwhelmed because you think of how powerful and deadly this enemy is, how evil he is, Paul tells us, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's the message of chapter 12 of Revelation as well. You are, If you're in Christ, you are more than a conqueror over an enemy you could never hope to beat. You know, the, the dragon compared to us, is it's, it makes David and Goliath look like chump change. The Goliath was bigger than David by a good bit. Compared to the dragon, he's nothing. And compared to us, We can't ever hope on our own strength to defeat the evil one. 
So what does Paul say? Take up the full armor of God that you may withstand in the evil day because Christ is our conqueror and we are more than conquerors in him through him who loved us. Let's, let's pray.